The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2019 Campus Outreach New Year's Conference. More information about Campus Outreach New Year's Conference can be found at conycnd.com. All right. So this is the a little feedback. This is a seminar to be seen, kind of combining theology, psychology, just to make sure you're in the right spot. My name is Eric Lonergan. I've been on staff for a really long time, as you might be able to tell from the gray in my beard um, and the lack of hair on the top of my head. I've done an exchange. I never used to have a beard, and I used to have a whole lot of hair on the top of my head, unfortunately. That's what 14 years of staff will do. Um, so I've been on staff at CO Minneapolis for that long. I've been on a number of different campuses, and I, I've been on secular campuses, private Christian college campuses, and this past few years I have been studying psychology and counseling in graduate school, and I'm nearing my end of that. Elise and I have overlapped for a few years in St. Cloud. I'll let her herself, but we've been on similar tracks, and that's what kind of was the genesis of this seminar. Yes, I'm Elisa Horning. Um, I've been on staff with CM Minneapolis for about six years. Like he said, we got to overlap at the same campus for about two years. Um, and then for the last year and a half, I've actually, I moved down to Florida to be in grad school for a counseling program. Um, so like Eric said, that's something that um, as we came on staff with the college ministry, but realized we were both really passionate about counseling. Um, we're just excited to share with you both. I think what we have been learning as we have been counseled um, and the things that we're learning as we learn how to counsel other people um, about how theology and psychology um, come together. Okay. All right, well, the way we're going to start out today, um, we really want to kind of start with just a personal reflection. Um, so I know you guys have had a lot going on already today. But I want to ask you to just kind of try to settle in where you are. Um, I'm going to ask you some questions, and I'd love for you to just try to settle in and really reflect on these questions for yourselves. Um, and the question that I want to ask you is, how do you feel about God? And I'm not asking, what do you know about God, or what have you learned about Him? I'm curious, how do you feel toward Him? How do you feel in His presence um, and for some of you, if you're more visual, maybe it would help to imagine if Jesus were to walk into this room, what do you think the look on his face would be toward you? How would you expect him to interact with you? Or when you think about being in his presence, what kinds of emotions get stirred up inside you? And as you sit with those questions, Again, trying to personally reflect, strip away what you know about him and think about how you feel toward him. I'd love for you to try to, to name those emotions, to put words to that experience. And I imagine that probably for some of you, um, there may be some, some positive feelings that come up. Like it, you may imagine that Jesus would be very kind or very present or very caring toward you, and that would make you feel encouraged or comforted. Um, but I also imagine, I think every single one of us, including myself in this room, if we sat with these questions long enough, um, would also discover some pretty negative feelings. Um, negative feelings of toward God, like you might expect that sometimes he feels kind of scary, he feels mean, he feels 
unpredictable, he feels distant, or you might discover negative feelings in yourself, like being in his presence makes you feel ashamed or apathetic or guilty, like you've never done enough. And I ask these questions just to um, kind of bring awareness to the fact that there can be such a big gap between what our head knows about God and how we feel in relationship with him. Um, and that can be confusing when you know the right answers, but why do you keep feeling these ways toward God? Um, and we just would suggest that we think that your story and your personal experiences have such a great impact on you and on um, your relationships that your story has a huge impact on your relationship with God and the way that you view him. And so we want to introduce some categories that psychology, the study of psychology gives us um, to help us kind of to equip you to get curious about your story and the ways that your experiences are impacting your view of God. Yeah, so I, you know, if I'm really honest, in, in some moments for me, in my deeper, darker struggles, in the sort of unvarnished, I, I have a lot of theological categories, I've read the Bible quite a bit, I've, I've gone to seminary and done some work there, I can give quite a few good answers, but when I sit with that question, I think one of the sort of normal answers that rises to the surface for me, I'm not saying normal in the sense that it's good, but normal in the sense that this is kind of at the core for me is he's not there or he's, he's silent. And, uh, and that says something, it, it sort of encapsulates about my relationship with God and my struggle. And so these kinds of answers to the kinds of questions that Elisa was asking are, are crucially important because it will say something about your day-to-day -to -day interacting with God and with others. And we're going to get into more of that. But for those of you who like a map, this is what we're going to try to unpack. And I like things to be sticky, so there's a sort of stickiness to this to help you remember what, what we've said. So what we're going to do is, is unpack how we long to be seen, our vision is blurred, but God sees us perfectly. We all long to be seen. Our vision is blurred, but God sees us perfectly. And, and so instead of just these sticky phrases, we, we will unpack the meaning behind them, but longing to be seen, we all long for connection. That's essentially what that's talking about. Our vision is blurred. The reality is, that we, many of us in this room, every single one of us in this room have been sinned against in some way, shape, or form. You have wounds that you carry, okay? And it doesn't have to be this sort of Hollywood, crazy, brokenness story that sometimes you hear. Wounds can be as subtle and as small as a slight that a friend has given you, maybe even today. It was a jab, and there was a little bit of hurt and pain but things that we carry with us. So that blurs our vision. Right, we've, we've been wounded and we wound others. We Another way to say it is we sin and we've been sinned against. That's how our, our vision gets blurred. But God sees us perfectly. He gives us and provides us a space to, to bring all of our struggles and all of our sin to him and he loves us fully, right? So that's, that's where we're going. So. We long to be seen. There's a, uh, an author named Curtis Thompson. The, this is a, there are a couple 
rare breeds in the world, all right? You know like in National Geographic, they make some new discovery, you find some new animal and someone gets to name it, and it's, it's always an exciting, exhilarating thing. There's another thing in the psychology world that's really rare, and that's a Christian psychologist, and secondly, even more rare, is a Christian psychiatrist. Okay, you know the difference is? A psychiatrist has a medical degree. They can prescribe medication, and so they've gone to medical school. And Curtis Thompson is a Christian psychiatrist, and there's a book upstairs that you can get called The Anatomy of the Soul. Super helpful book. He's written another book called The Soul of Shame. And if you like this idea of biology intersecting with theology, he's one of the most phenomenal authors I've ever read on the subject, where those two things combine. And also, quite honestly, one of the few. <laughs> there's not a whole lot of people that do that. But he has this phrase that has stuck with me ever since I've read it. And this is what he says. Everyone comes into this world. This is underneath the idea of we long to be seen. Every one of us, each and every single one of you, were born into this world looking for someone, looking for you. And you remain in that mode of searching for all of your life. You come into the world looking for someone, looking for you, and you remain in that mode of searching all your life. Just a few weeks ago, my five-year-old daughter had a Christmas concert. So you get a bunch of five and under uh, age, under-year-olds, that's what I wanted to say, that doesn't make any sense. You get a bunch of young little toddlers up on stage, right? You've seen this happen. And yes, you have to do this. You don't go there because it's the most enthralling, uh, epic singing you've ever heard. That's not why I go to my five-year-old daughter's concerts. I know that it's going to be what it is <laughs> up on stage. You go there to see them. And, and guess what every single one of them is doing? What are they doing? They're looking for you. This, this, that's all, this is, you just get a bunch of this, with, and these days with a bunch of cell phones in the way. It's like, put your darn phone down. I can't even, in real time, capture this image of just trying to connect in a relational human way with my daughter. But every single one of them is doing that in that moment. They're trying to look for someone looking for them. When I've given talks like this before in the past, when my uh, now nine-year-old was learning how to ride a bike, I took a video of her doing this. I didn't train her to do this, I promise. After every single little jaunt that she made on her bike on her own, you know what she did immediately afterward? She turned her head to look at me. Every single time. I didn't train her, I didn't say, hey, make sure you connect eyes with me to make sure everything's okay after you make 10 feet of progress on the bike by yourself. We didn't have like this plan for that to happen because this is innate in us. We long for connection. And so what we're going to talk about is how we see this in the Bible at points as well as how we see this in psychology. Um, and really what this, there's an undergirding theory in here. And we're not going to try to get too scientific and too in-depth in all this even though we could talk about this for a long time because both of us are nerds and love grad school. But this is attachment theory, okay? Attachment theory is kind of embedded in what all of these things that we're talking about. So um, one quick example, Luke 15, a very common uh, gospel message from the Bible. We heard it from front. He was referencing it, Mac was, this morning. What happens when the father, what happens when, when the son comes home? The father what? He sees his son, and before the son can even get anything out, he runs to him, but he sees him. In Luke 15, verse 20, 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Uh, Psalm 56.8. We're not going to do this exhaustively throughout the Bible, just a few references. Psalm 56.8. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. So promises like that are profoundly helpful for me when I often struggle with this deep-seated, God does not see me. God does not know me. And so, so Psalm 56, 8, he, he, not only does he see me, he keeps track of my tears and yours. And, and some of the ones that you can't even shed at this point because you're so shut down and dismissive of your emotions. God knows those inward parts of you because that's, this theme is, exists throughout the Bible, and Elisa's going to unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, another way that the Bible talks about this longing for connection that we come into the world with is to talk about the Trinity, which the Trinity is this idea that we have one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these aren't three persons who exist at different times and different places. They exist somehow, it's such a mystery, but they exist somehow eternally together at the same time, which means that God in his essence is relational because he himself is always in communion within himself. And so what gets interesting then is that if God in his essence is relational, then we go to Genesis 1 where it talks about the creation. And God is saying, let there be light, let there be water, let there be the expanse over the earth. And then it gets to kind of the pinnacle of creation where he's about to create man and woman. And he says, let us create man in our image and in our likeness, which is such a weird sentence for God to say, let us create man in our image. And it's the first hint that we get in the Bible of the Trinity, that somehow this one God is an us, an our, that there's three persons within him. Um, but what it means then, if God is relational and always in relationship within himself, and then we are created in that image, it means that we represent a God who is relational. And so of course we come into the world with this deep longing and need for relationship and for connection. And we see it, I mean, he's already said this, but you see it from literally the time that you're a baby crying out for the attention and the, um, you need your parents to take care of you. And then as you grow up and you're looking for the approval of your parents, and then you get older and you're looking for friends and you're looking for where, which group you're gonna fit into and where you can belong. And then you start wanting a romantic partner and a good love story in all these different ways. It's just an expression and a, our constant search for the union and the communion that God has in himself, um, which I just think is such a cool, um, it's such a, a huge part of how we image God in our desire for relationship. And just to illustrate this a little bit more with regard to science, there are a number of things that we could talk about, but interestingly enough, this is, what do you think, maybe some of you are undergrad in psych here, and if you are, feel free, you, you can cheat and answer this question. What is the number one predictor for success in a relationship with a counselor? So there's all sorts of, we use words like modalities, and all these fancy things, CBT and DBT. There's all these different ways that, per, that counselors perform therapy with someone. But there's one thing that rises to the surface that unequivocally, everyone within our area of study would agree, this is the number one predictor for success. What do you think it is? Relationship with 
That's right. Is it Richie? Yeah. Hey. The therapeutic relationship is the number one predictor for success. No matter what sort of modality they're using, that just means that that's a fancy way of saying the way in which they seek to counsel that person. The number one predictor is how strong that relationship is between the client and the counselor. Um, and then this is, so these are sort of research-backed realities that I'm, I'm talking about here. Um, it's just the, it's just observed over and over again that relationships influence the development of the brain more than anything else. There's a podcast that I'd strongly encourage. If, if any of this is interesting to you, Adam Young, The Place We Find Ourselves, is a podcast I'd strongly encourage you to listen to. Adam Young, The Place We Find Ourselves. If you want to come up afterward and talk to us more about these things, feel free. Um, the power of love, touch, empathy. Lots of research showing the necessity for these things. Here's what's interesting. There, there's a ton of research done. There are Russian orphanages, tons and tons of orphanages where research was gathered where all these orphans were fed, they were clothed, they were provided shelter for, and, and there was a significant number of, of those orphans, children, who still died. Now, now listen, they were fed, they're given nutrition, same amount. They're clothed, and they were given shelter, and they still die. What What do you think it was that killed them? I heard some murmurings. What was it? Anybody? Broken heart. Essentially, they they didn't have connection. They weren't touched. There's been studies that have been done where you can put two infants within the same caretaking, who, who get the exact same amount of nutrition. One is massaged for 15 minutes a day, skin to skin connection. The other is not. The one who's given the skin to skin the connection for 15 minutes a day will gain weight, despite having the same amount of nutritional intake as the other. This isn't just scientists who can't exactly quantify love, cannot deny and have come to the conclusion that Babies need connection. They can't just have uh, sort of these utilitarian provisions for them, food, water, shelter, etc. They need to be loved. They need to be connected to. And in some senses, you might think, well, duh, that makes sense. We didn't need you know, some fancy psychologist to figure that out. But at the same time, it's cool that we, we figured these things out and are able to sort of quantify it, and it helps us learn how to love others better. So. I could say more about that, but I'm going to show a video that sort of demonstrates. Some of you may have seen this before. If, if you have not, this is something called the still face experiment. Okay, this illustrates a point. So, what's going on here is a mother is going to be looking at her infant child, and she is going to turn away and, and have her face go still. And if there's uh, in the background, you're going to hear a psychologist talking about and observing what's going on and kind of walking us through this reaction. Now here's the important thing though. We're gonna, I, I don't want you to be merely a scientist and observer while this is happening. You need to understand this is you. Every single one of you have been taken care of by somebody. Somebody in your life. And, and I want you to just observe. This is like a minute and a half long. Just what goes on in the still face experiment and then we're gonna we're gonna talk more about that.
on the still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. And she gives a greeting to the baby, the baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this. And then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on. Why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. that goes on, that we all do with our kids. The bad is when something bad happens, but the infant can overcome it. After all, when you stop the still face, the mother and the baby start to play again. The ugly is when you don't give the child any chance to get back to the good. There's no reparation, and they're stuck in that really ugly situation. Okay, so it's really important what he said at the end there. The good, the bad, the ugly. The good, you see the connection happening. You see the baby's eyes lighting up. You see, when you're that young, and all of you, all of us have been at that stage, you have to have a model. Someone is modeling love, empathy, compassion. Someone was modeling it. You have no ability to regulate yourself. You have to have an external object that demonstrates this to you, that exhibits this to you. And it's what, here's the reality that happens. Okay, I'm gonna say some sophisticated things. Please try to hang with me. You all do remember those years. It's called implicit memory. It's not explicit memory. You can't recall what went on between zero to two with some sort of verbal processing, because that didn't exist. But you have implicit memory, it's in your bones, it's in your muscles, it's in you. And you were treated a certain way. And unfortunately for a lot of us, there was a lot of ugly. There was a lot where that reparation didn't happen. We see in this example, the mother eventually comes to and engages and the baby lights up again. But when that doesn't happen, and the most perfect parents in the world 
can't do it perfectly. It's not possible. You miss cues. You misread. You, there's neglect at times. And that shapes and molds you. And so you've got to stay curious about your story. That's one of the things we're trying to impress upon you all. Is you have to stay curious about your story because there are things right now in your life that you are merely reacting out of and have no choice in one sense in the matter because it's embedded in your DNA. It's embedded in the way in, in which you have been shaped and molded from your upbringing until you start to become more aware of your story. So I, I would encourage you to take these things into consideration and what we're going to start doing is, is trying to unpack some of the ways in which when that attachment doesn't happen in the healthiest way, what does that look like in our lives? There, there are two sort of founders of this theory, John Wolby and Mary Ainsworth. Ainsworth had done this experiment. She called it the stranger situation, okay? In which she had a baby, a toddlerish, in a room, and she brought the caretaker, oftentimes it was a mother, but it could have been a caretaker, into the room without a stranger in the room, brought a stranger into the room, uh, made observations about how the baby relates to mom, relates to stranger, had stranger go out of the room, had mom go out of the room, different interactions, and made all these observations. And essentially what was born out of this was a confirmation that there are certain types of attachment that children have that carry with them all the way into adulthood. So that's what we're gonna try to unpack a little bit more over the next uh, few minutes here. And, and so this is where our vision gets blurred, okay? Where we have been wounded against, we've been sinned against, and we sin against others. That those two things happen at the same time. So I'm gonna give it over to Lisa to talk about one of the patterns from that. Yes, yeah, so like you said, we, we all share that experience that we have been wounded in some way, simply because we live in a broken world, that no matter how good your parents' intentions were, um, or other significant people in your life, they have failed you. So we've all experienced relational disappointment, but what psychology and the theory of attachment helps us understand is that there's kind of two big categories for how people deal with that kind of relational failure and disappointment. And one is called an avoidant attachment, and one is called more anxious attachment. So I'm gonna talk about the avoidant attachment um, because I happen to relate more to this kind of attachment, which I'll talk about. Um, but the avoidant attachment, um, when you think about the, the experiments that we briefly talked about, babies like the one you just saw, when they were observing babies who had an avoidant attachment, it was, what they saw was that when their caregiver would leave the room, these babies were Internally, later they were able to do studies showing their bodies were distressed. Like they felt afraid because their caregiver had left them. But they didn't show their distress. They acted like they were fine. They didn't seem to not notice that their caregiver had left. And later when the caregiver came back to reunite with them and to offer comfort again, the baby didn't care. The baby acted like they didn't care that their caregiver had come back. And that you start to see this kind of avoidant way that even infants are learning that when they experience some kind of neglect, they're learning to, to one way to deal with that um, is to avoid their caregiver. And so how this looks then as we carry that with us into adulthood um, and what this means for your story, and I really wanna, I know we're talking about kind of these 
psychological theory, but I want to bring this back to your story. That's what we're here to do, is to help you get curious about your story and how this has impacted you and your relationships and your relationship with God. So the person who has an avoidant attachment might have a story where they have experienced some kind of neglect, whether that's um, significant people in their life who were absent from their story, um, maybe it's significant caregivers or people who just didn't show very much affection toward you. Maybe it's just for whatever reasons the circumstances, your caregivers or significant people in your life were um, not able to, to know you well. They didn't know what was happening inside you. And there's a researcher, a psychologist, um, who's done so much research on this, and he says, when parents are distant or removed, even really young children intuitively pick up the feeling that their parents have no intention of getting to know them, which leaves them with a deep sense of emptiness. Which is such a sad statement, but it's so true. You think back to what we said, that you come into the world with this deep longing and even need to be loved and to be in relationship, to experience this connection. And so this avoidant baby comes into the world with these longings, and then for whatever reason, the people in your world ignore you or neglect you. And if you relate to that, if there's anything, um, any kind of neglect like that in your story, my guess would be, and research would show, that you've probably learned how to cope with that, that deep disappointment and emptiness, by becoming independent on yourself. You learn not to trust other people because they don't show up for you. You can't trust them to connect with you or to provide the support that you need. So you learn to depend on yourself and yourself alone. Um, and this is where I feel like I can't even just talk about this as a psychological category. I have to talk about it personally for myself because um, in my own story, um, just because of suffering that was happening in my family even when I was a young child, um, I learned that I better take care of myself. I learned that I better not have needs or express my needs, but that I better take care of myself. And I have carried that attitude with me, that posture into adulthood where I kind of have this attitude of like, I'm fine, I'm fine. I can take care of myself. You don't have to take care of me. Why don't you take care of yourself? Um, I'm fine, I can rely on myself. And like I said, it's this, um, it's this view of, I don't trust you or expect you to show up for me. Um, and I will only rely on myself. And to be honest, that way of coping with the relational brokenness of feeling neglected, um, to some extent it kind of works. Like it worked for me for a long time. I didn't even realize that I was living with that posture until I would say like the very end of my time in college. And the only way that I recognized that I lived with this posture was because there were enough people who had tried to get close to me, like disciplers and people in discipleship groups and roommates, people who actually cared about me and were trying to get close to me, who would practically shake me saying like, let us in. And I couldn't, like even if I wanted to, and sometimes I didn't even know if I wanted to, I, I couldn't because all I could do was trust myself. And it was so scary for me to think about opening my heart to be vulnerable to them. I could, I could talk about information, I could give, go back and forth about ideas, um, but to be vulnerable with my story, to open my heart to someone, um, I just, I couldn't and I wouldn't. 
do that. And that, that was what helped me to realize this, how I had carried my story and this reaction to avoid intimacy, which is so sad because the cost of that, it may work, it may help you deal with the disappointment of feeling neglected um, in one sense, but the cost is that, that the longing for connection that I came into the world with um, became terrifying to me. And so I could no longer connect with people the way that I was meant to. And you better believe that the way that I was relating with people absolutely affected the way that I related to God and do relate to God. I would say um, the number one most consistent struggle that I have had in my walk with the Lord is just to feel close to Him. Because the way that I've learned to relate to people, um, I... I project that same framework onto God where I don't expect you to show up for me, but I expect God to show up for me. And I've learned that I can rely on myself. I'm competent. I can handle it. I'll get through whatever. So why would I pour out my heart to God? And even when I know that that's not true, it's so ingrained in my heart and in my brain and in my body the way um, that I deal with that that um, it has been such a consistent struggle and oftentimes a really discouraging struggle for me that I long for closeness now with God, um, but I, I struggle to get there because of how my story and these specific wounds and my choices to continue to respond to my disappointment by avoiding intimacy um, has, a, it has impacted my walk with the Lord. Um, so that's that kind of is a summary of this avoidant attachment, this way of attaching avoidantly. And um, like Keith already said, if, if you relate to that, I would love to talk to you after this um, if you have more questions about that. But that's kind of the first way that, um, that psychological research has shown that people, um, even infants, react um, to, uh, to this disappointment in relationships. So if you have avoidant on the one side, so Basically, there's secure attachment, and then within insecure attachment, you have avoidance, and then there's anxious. So if some of you are resonating with what Elisa was sharing, and some of you are not so much, you may resonate more with this side of things. Anxious attachment is developed when the caretaker is anxious, stressed out, his or herself. And I, I want to stress his or herself. This isn't simply past, this isn't like the sin that all mothers commit. Just happens to be the fact that more often than not, mothers are doing the nurturing, and and but that's not always the case. Some of us are raised by grandparents, aunts, uncles, or others. However, in the case in which the caretaker is anxious, him or herself, while caring for the child, that in a sense gets absorbed by the child. Okay, we have something called mirror neurons. So if one of you yawns and you catch someone yawning and then you are tempted to yawn and you're like, why am I yawning just because they yawned? It's because you have this reflective neuron firing in that moment that's causing imitation. And it happens in all sorts of ways. If you, are, if you easily cry at the drop of a hat because someone else is crying, your mirror neurons, your mirror <laughs> <laughs> I'm too excited that my, my, my mouth isn't catching up in the brain. Um, those things are firing, those things, these things in your head, in your brain. And, and it's causing you to imitate. It's, it's like an empathetic bent that you just naturally have. 
okay? And so when that happens with the caretaker though, and the caretaker is stressed out, that causes the child to become stressed out. The child sort of soaks that in and absorbs it and feels distressed him or herself. So that's kind of how it develops. And then what, how it looks like, more like at the state and stage that you're in currently, is a sort of preoccupation with the self. Always questioning oneself, always asking an uncertain of decisions to be made, or do you have it really right with this person, this friend of yours? You need, you need to have affirmation from them. You just have to have this final word of, we're on the same page. I feel like everything's good. There's a clinginess that sort of exists there with a person who grows up having come from that background. And so those are kind of two ways in which these things uh, can flesh themselves out. There's technically a third, and, and there's some sort of combination. It's often, there, every different person have, has a different category for each of these, but there's like a combination of these two things where a person can kind of simultaneously feel both. And they're often that can occur in a, a fairly um, unstable environment, and so it is possible for that to happen. But maybe at least you can shed a quick word on the whole idea of the spectrum. Yeah, just a note on that, that even as we um, kind of present these as categories, like there's the avoidant attachment, there's the anxious attachment, um, it might be more helpful to think of them as a spectrum. Like you might not be 100% one of them, but you might find yourself somewhere in what each of us had said. Um, and the point of all of this is not to put you in a box, like that you are avoidant or that you are anxious. I hope that it... Um, like we've said multiple times, that it gives you a curiosity about your story. That, hey, if you relate to the fact that it's hard for you to be vulnerable or that you're always questioning yourself and your relationships, it would be really worth your time to get curious about that and to maybe take a deeper look at your story, which we'll talk about later, um, to understand where that comes from. But we just want you to know that you don't have to put yourself in a box. It's not black and white. You may see um, characteristics of these in different ways or even in different relationships with people. Okay, so we've covered how we long to be seen. We've just talked about how our vision gets blurred. And so finally, we're going to talk about how God sees us perfectly. We're going to try to wrap this up with how God sees us perfectly. Now, some of you might be wondering this question. And if you're not, I'm going to insert it into your mind to wonder because it's a good question to have. I've asked this question, and you can expound on this question Infinitely, welcome to my insane mind. But you have people who are bent politically one way or another, conservative or liberal. You have people who are bent um, in, in certain moral ways one way or another. And, and this is one of those ways in which, because you could be asking yourself, if this is the case, if I have not really had as much say in my life as I think I have, and you haven't. You're an American and you think you have, but you have not. You are not a culmination of decisions that you've made in your life. This is what most Western Americans think, that I am simply a culmination of hard work and all the single decisions that I have made that have led me to this point. I have brought myself here, and that's how it's worked. No, it hasn't. Not by a long shot. Not, not even close. And so, here's the reality. You aren't simply either a victim or a culmination of personal choices. You're not simply shaped by your experiences and your environment purely. 
or just a culmination of your personal choices that you've autonomous, autonomously made, okay? And our tendency is to want to do one or the other. Because some of us in here hearing these categories want to say, well, look, see, it is all the parents' fault. <laughs> That's good. This is confirming what I've always suspic was suspicious of. I don't want you to walk away with hearing that. But neither do I want you to think that, well, I just got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and be secure. Now I'm going to pursue secure attachment, and it's my responsibility to do so. It doesn't work like that either. So you have been sinned against, and you do commit sins, and there's mystery in that. Okay? There, there's a both and, and you have to sit with that sort of mystery and paradox. That there are things that have been shaping you and molding you since, the, since you were in your womb. They have detected how ways in which trauma occurs in the womb. And you have made choices in your life that have compounded some of the um, difficulty and hardship that you face through your own sin. Both of those things are true simultaneously. So then the question becomes, if that's true, there's a tension there that those things exist both at the same time. Elise is going to help us understand how do we heal? How do we make, move forward? Yeah, so Eric just says that if we have both wounding and we sin, and both of these things impact our stories, then how do we heal? And I think that what God calls us to is both to lament our sorrow and to repent of our sin. To lament and to repent over and over. It's this process. This is not like a one-time formula. This is, as we've said, as you um, dive deeper into your story, I think all of us will find ways that we have been wounded, and we've given you some categories to even understand this. Even if you don't have a traumatic story, we've given you some categories to understand the ways that failed relationships have wounded you and there's sorrow there. That's painful to sit with. That's why most of us don't like to probably think about our story because it's painful to recognize those wounds. Um, but as you do, as you feel that pain, God calls us to lament. And to lament is not just to feel sad. To lament actually is a passionate expression of our grief and our sorrow. So if any of you have ever read or heard the story of Job, I'm sure many of you have, and it's a story of a man who has unimaginable suffering, and for like 40 chapters, um, it's him and his friends going back and forth, and Job, over and over, he's expressing anger and rage at God for this suffering, and his despair and hopelessness because of his suffering, and um, at points, even as the reader, it kind of feels like, Job, <laughs> you've gone too far, uh, but at the very end of this book, God's response to Job is to say, um, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Which is to say that as Job is lamenting for an entire book, he's lamenting, he's expressing the sorrow of his situation and all the emotions that come with that, God doesn't condemn him for that expression. He actually invites it. He calls Job a righteous man for having lamented his sorrow. And so in the ways that you may have learned because of people who didn't respond to your emotions well or who didn't give you the space um, to feel things strongly um, or have made you maybe express your emotions in a way to get their attention so that they would pay attention to you, God is 
the perfect father who is so attuned to us and so cares about us at all times that, that he calls us to lament our sorrow to him. And then along with that, as we've said, as you look at your story and as you find the places where you have felt wounded by significant people in your life, and as you grieve those wounds, you will most certainly find that right alongside the wounding, there is sin in your own heart. There are the choices that you have made to deal with those wounds that have kept you in this place of avoidance or anxiety. Um, and as God reveals those sinful choices, the choices you've made to stay there, um, he calls you to repent of those things. And again, he's the perfect father who's already paid the debt for our sins so that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's a perfect freedom to, again, to express um, the sin that we find in our heart that's right alongside our wounding to him. And the thing that um, I think, the thing that strikes me most about both lamenting to God over our sorrow and repenting over our sin is that both of these are relational actions. Both of these are things that actually connect us to God when we express our sorrow and our sin to him, which is the point of everything that we've been talking about. We're not just giving you these categories so that you would have more self-awareness, but so that you would gain a closer connection to God in healthy ways. Um, and so I, I just would encourage you, I'm still figuring out what this looks like in my own life, and I'm still in this process of lamenting and repenting. Um, but I would encourage you to to go to the Bible to see the kind of father who calls you to both of those things. So what we're going to do, I want to demonstrate this for you. And I have an illustration through a video clip that I think is, is really profound and gets uh, home this idea of having the ability to lament and repent simultaneously. So some of you are probably familiar with this film. It's called Inside Out. If not, um, I'm going to just set it up for, for just a second here. And basically, what, uh, what's going on is there's a character named Riley. And Riley has been essentially uh, squelching her emotion. She's basically said, sadness, get out of here. I don't like the way you feel. And so, get out of here. And, and this culminates to her basically saying, I'm going to run away from home. Now that's, what, what do you think running away from home would be, avoidant or anxious? It is both, but yes, it, it, there's an avoidance, right? It leans heavily on avoidance. She's running away. She's saying, I'm going to get out of Dodge. And we can say, this is, she knows this is a, you know, the film, it's Hollywood. They're not using categories of sin. <laughs> but this is, this is an act of rebellion. This is saying, I'm forsaking my parents. And something needs to happen. So what I want you to pay attention to is how joy and sadness interact, and especially pay attention to the parents. Because think about that emotion, that feeling that you all had at the very beginning that we asked you about. That sort of core feeling of the representation of who you feel like God is. Because remember, you can state all you want what you believe about God with your head, with your lips, but at the core level, when it's all wiped away, all the, maybe some of you are, are, are really steeped in doctrine and theology, that core feeling 
represents a much deeper reality of your relationship with God. And you need to look at yourself as the one going before God as Riley goes before her parents, okay? Keep that in mind as you watch this.
Okay, so I just want to say this. There are many of you in here who have never really felt that with God. That sort of vulnerability. There are many of you who, who could. And if any of this has jarred anything, we have, there's more we could say. We have some, some practical things that we could say. I'd encourage you, the Adam Young podcast, a place, the place we find ourselves, where you can talk to us about these things. You can talk to others. But remember, healing doesn't happen in isolation. It happens in relationship and in relationship with God, with others and with God. And so let me pray, and then you can be on your way. Father, I thank you that you are just infinitely better than the parents in this film. You are a God who invites us. You are the God of Job who rants and says he wishes he wasn't even born. And by some mystery, you say, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. You give us the emotional space to lament and repent. We praise you that that's true, that you made that possible through Jesus Christ. Heal us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at conyc.com.